0: What happens when climate, human health, and poverty converge? Climate One conversations feature all aspects of the climate emergency, the individual and the systemic, the exciting and the scary. I'm Greg Dalton. Experts have warned us that COVID 19 is just one example of climate change related diseases on the rise. And while climate disruption, environmental health, and the current pandemic may seem like three distinct problems, to many experts, that's not the case.
1: All of them are connected. The underlying cause is systemic racism, and because of that, communities are affected by adverse effects from climate change, and because of exposure to hazardous substances, because of where they live, because of redlining and such, they are more at risk from COVID-19 infections and deaths.
2: And so if you want to address pandemics and you want to address climate change, you've got to focus on equity. And the solution and the great news in some ways is that the actions you need to take are one and the same. Adrian Hollis is Senior Climate Justice and Health
0: Scientist at the Union of Concerned Scientists. And Aaron Bernstein is Interim Director of the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. I'll be speaking with both of them later in the program. My first guest, Catherine Coleman Flowers, is the author of Waste, One Woman's Fight Against America's Dirty Secret, which explores environmental justice in rural America. Flowers started her career in activism as a teenager in Lowndes County, Alabama. That's when she campaigned successfully to have the name of her high school changed from Lowndes County Training School, named for a noted secessionist, to Central High School. Since then, she's gone on to become a leading advocate for civil and environmental rights. She founded the Center for Rural Enterprise and Environmental Justice and in 2020 was selected as a MacArthur Fellow. At Bernie Sanders' invitation, Flowers was appointed to Joe Biden's Unity Task Force on Climate Change, which included John Kerry, Gina McCarthy, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. In 2001, Flowers moved back to Lowndes County and discovered a lack of sanitation and clean water in this largely poor and Black community. Absence of those basic services, which most Americans take for granted, was leading to the spread of disease-causing parasites such as hookworm. Why did she return?
3: I was always pulled back. I think it was the you know the dirt. <laughs> it's something about that soil, seeing that red dirt. Um something about the people and their spirit and their, and their smiles and always been receptive to me, receptive whenever I went home. I knew I was home. I just remember as a child my father telling me when I was, you know we were we were living in Montgomery prior to moving to Lyons County. And we would be on Highway eighty. Eighty is the road that was the, uh, you know, that's those were where people marched from Selma to Montgomery. So we would be going west on eighty, going into Lowndes County, and we would go through an area called Big Swamp. And there was a Big Swamp Creek, and there were three bridges there when going through Big Swamp. After we crossed over Big Swamp, my father would tell us we were down home now, <laughs> and he would tell tell us, you know. If you're ever on this road and anybody gets behind you, you can stop at any house. These are your cousins.
0: Hmm. hmm.
3: So that is the reason why I've always felt connected and close to Lyons County was always called back because, you know, my blood is in that soil. And a lot of the people that are there are my relatives and and, and I will forever be connected.
0: And when did you realize that climate change is impacting the issues that you're working on, rural development, economic development, and um, human waste systems? Well,
3: I think part of it happened when I went back home. One of the things that I started to notice changes, you know, the good thing about traveling to other parts of the country, you can compare. And, And when I was living in Oklahoma and I could see you know, armadillas something that I didn't see growing up in, in Alabama. I knew that armadillas were not native to Alabama. But when I moved back, I started to see armadillas. I started to see palm trees grow in areas where they would not grow before. And I didn't know what it was. And I watched An Inconvenient Truth. And that's when I gave it a name. I didn't know it was climate change. I thought it was just simple. I knew that the world was changing. I knew that it was getting warmer. I knew that the seasons were, we we had more hot days than cold days. Uh, And just things were, were just, you know, not the same anymore. I guess I had lived long enough to start seeing that, but it was happening faster than than I thought it should be happening. Because if I was noticing it, it meant that something was going on. And, and and climate change helped me to to understand that how it connected to economic development. Well, initially I didn't know the connection, but as I learned about the wastewater problem and I learned that um you know I would hear things I mean people would say some of the, sometimes the cruelest things when I was trying to do economic development for Lyons County they would say things like there's no reason to go to Lyons County except to get to Selma or to Montgomery this is what I would hear from government officials uh who were supposed to be assisting with economic development and that let me know that they had a bias against not only Lyons County but rural communities because they didn't see any value there except as a place to go through to get someplace else Uh, So when we, in in trying to do recruitment and, and trying to bring in some of the services that people needed, clearly one of the things they would always ask about was wastewater and what kind of infrastructure was in place. And it was during that course of that that I found out about the residents and the problems that were happening there because they were arresting people that could not afford wastewater treatment. And initially, I had been told uh, by people that we trusted at the time that it was because people could not afford it. And we thought that that maybe getting some funding in place for people to get the wastewater treatment, the on-site wastewater treatment would help. But uh, we ended up getting a, uh, a grant that was actually sponsored by Senator Richard Shelby that was part of a congressional appropriation. We got it through the EPA and we did what people had not done before which was going house to house. What we started to learn was it was greater than that. It wasn't just that people were without wastewater treatment, that people that had it were had failing systems and it was coming back into their homes. And there were some people in these small towns that were located within the county had small treatment plants and they were paying wastewater treatment fees and the sewage was still coming back into their homes too. And that's when we realized that there was a connection and the illnesses associated with that when we saw the mosquitoes were still thriving and living in the i mean I have a picture of when I went to a site uh with some students, and it was a pit full of raw sewage in that raw sewage you could see frogs that probably had been tadpoles that were whose eyes were peeking out from around human, among human feces and and it was teeming with mosquitoes and that That in itself made me start thinking, there could be something going on here.
0: One of the earliest people to help you was Bob Woodson, a conservative expert on urban issues and MacArthur Genius Grant recipient. You invited him to learn about rural poverty in Lowndes County. What did he see and how did he respond?
3: Oh, wow. I just remember when I first met Mr. Woodson, I met him at a faith-based summit. And there were all these ministers there from around the country. (laughs) And he spoke and I had met him before, but, you know, we had entered into a a debate. I I was debating with him, actually, but I couldn't see why he was a member of the GOP. So, uh, but it just so happened that when I met him years later, uh, what he had to say on the stage somehow resonated with me. And I I felt like this man is going to help us. And I he came off the stage. I went to him and I told him I was from Lowndes County and that I was trying to do economic development and I needed his help. And he said he invited me first to come to his office, which we did go there. And this was shortly after 9-11. So we went there to meet with him, but he listened to us and, and, and accepted our invitation to come to Lowndes County. He was quite moved by what he saw. The first person to come to Mr. Wilson was a man who had, was a minister of a smaller church that was there in the area where his family was living. And it was a group of families that were living in mobile homes, and they kind of sat on an incline. And the man came to Mr. Wilson, and he said that he had been told that he could no longer worship at his church or have services there because he didn't have a working septic system. And he was crying. And then there was a husband and wife who lived there who uh, they had tried to fix their system and it still wasn't working. And they had already been placed under arrest one time, and they had to go back to court. And they shared their stories, and they cried. And Mr. Woodson called uh, William Raspberry, uh, who at that time had a syndicated column at the Washington Post, and told him the story. And he wrote about it. But he also went to see the judge, the person who was the judge at that time. Uh, and saw some other people to talk about this and said that this is wrong. And and I think that out of that came his commitment to help us. And what he did was bring people that normally would not have paid us any attention, because at that time Bush was president, and he brought a lot of them to Lowndes County. And once people, no matter how politically they may have appeared you know, in the media when they came to see this, they were um uh, they were stunned,
0: you write that you know conservative people helped you uh were some of the earliest supporters of your work, bringing attention to the poverty and people living without adequate uh, healthy sanitation uh so tell us about meeting Jeff Sessions at a town hall, and then why he organized a fundraiser for him, not an, <laughs> not something I would expect
3: <laughs> because he'd listen um <laughs> so i the way I met him, I ended all a lot of the members of the at least the Alabama delegation. I know that that Senator Shelby's office, but certainly uh, Senator Sessions' office did a lot of town hall meetings, and I went to this town hall meeting in Fort Deposit, which is one of the towns in Lowndes County. And Senator Sessions talked about, you know, as as they all do, they talked about the programs that were available that people could access, and then you can ask questions. And my question was, how can poor counties like Lowndes County access these programs and they re- re- require a match and we don't have a tax base because they're too poor to have access, you know. And he he couldn't answer my question. He was stunned. And he came to me. I was sitting there and he actually came up to me and started talking to me, which I didn't expect. And he told me, he said, you know, I'm from Wilcox County, Alabama. He said, my I grew up poor. He said, my family didn't have we didn't have a television until I was 10. That's where we connected. Hmm. And from that point on, um, I was able to reach out to him and his staff. And I thought that one way for him to listen to local folk was for, to get the local black business community there to sponsor a fundraiser for him, which did happen at the home of one of the local black business people. And he came there. And I remember, um, there was a, a a young man there who's a graduate of Alabama who had a uh a shrimp farm. So apparently Senator Sessions went to see his shrimp farm and uh I met him there and I drove him from that area to the to where we had the fundraiser, which was not very far. And he asked me, Catherine, what do you want? I said, I want you to help Lyons County. And he stayed true to his word.
0: This is uh, very interesting to hear someone who obviously played quite a role in our national politics recently. It sounds like you had a moment there where you connected with him because of your class that maybe transcended race.
3: I think so, and I, I think that what we have to do is talk to each other and listen more. I think we have to stop shouting at each other because there was a time, you know, when I first met Bob Wilson, I was shouting at him, but when I met him again, I was I was humble. I listened. And he listened to me. And that's how we develop a relationship that lasts to this day.
0: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about climate, health, and environmental justice. Coming up, creating green new infrastructure means more than just building roads, bridges, and power grids.
3: We also have to talk about wastewater because it's basic. And it's basic to public health. And we have to be concerned that the next pandemic may not start somewhere else. It could start right here in the United States because we have the conditions here that are festering, that could feed it.
0: This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton and we're talking about the intersection of climate, human health and poverty. My guest is Katherine Coleman Flowers, founder and director of the Center for Rural Enterprise and Environmental Justice, and the recipient of a MacArthur Genius Award. In her book, Waste, One Woman's Fight Against America's Dirty Secret, Flowers tells the story of how her own run-in with mosquitoes while visiting a home in Lowndes County, Alabama, helped her make the connection between climate, poverty, and public health.
3: I had been called to a site by the state health department uh the person who was the regional direct the regional environmentalist took me to the home of this woman who was in her twenties and pregnant. They were threatening to put her in jail because she didn't have wastewater treatment and she had she was living in a single wide mobile home and was straight piping at, outside of her home. She had one child already who was autistic. Her family had struggled to come up with eight hundred dollars to do a perk test to keep her out of jail. It it was awful, and when I got there and I saw the situation, um, of course I wanted to help her, and I had showed up with a reporter from from the Associated Press just in case, because I knew how they operated. So I had on a dress with holes with the holes on, and and uh, the mosquitoes were so bad. This was in October. That's where climate change intersects again. The mosquitoes were so bad that they bit me on my leg. I had so many bites that I could look on the, my hose and actually see blood stains. And then later I broke out in a rash. But I also wrote Senator Sessions an email. I told him about them. One, they, they were threatening to arrest this, this woman and that we had had uh, this congressional appropriation that had passed in 2002. And here it was. Years later, we still didn't have it. So he actually wrote the letter to Lisa Jackson, who was EPA administrator at the time and explain what was happening and ask about the status of this appropriation. And within um, six months, we were contacted and we were told that we would have access to it. And that's what led to, we couldn't build anything. We couldn't construct any new systems or anything like that. But we could use it to, to do a study and to go from house to house to determine the extent of the wastewater problem in the county. And that also led to us learning other things, which led to the parasite study. Because then we knew where to go and who to talk to uh, when it came time to collect samples. Because we collected not only fecal samples, we collected blood samples, we collected water samples, and we also collected uh, soil samples to, to find out whether or not there was something there that was tropical. In nature, and that American doctors were not trained to look for. And of course, that's where climate change intersected with all of this uh, for me.
0: 60 million people in the United States are connected to individual on-site or small cluster septic systems. They're concentrated in New England and the Southeast, especially Florida. Why should people with septic systems be concerned about climate disruption? What's the connection?
3: Well, for a number of reasons. First of all, with septic systems, um, water is a part of the equation. Soil is a part of the equation. And in places like uh Florida, or places that are located uh near the coast, sea level rise is real and when sea level is, when the sea level is rising, the water table is rising in Florida you have it coming from the bottom with sea level rise, but you're also coming from the coming from the top because of the soil, and that makes them fail quicker uh but I'm hearing, especially since the book has published from people around the country having problems, people in Alaska because of melting permafrost. You know, there are people uh, that are having water issues because of droughts uh, in the Central Valley. And they're having wastewater problems too. Some of them never got the infrastructure in the first place. And then we're finding on top of this, the other layer is that for people that don't have infrastructure or failing infrastructure, uh, COVID can be, you can find COVID in, in wastewater, especially, you know, raw sewage. Uh, people can actually test it, and they are testing wastewater to find out the extent of the COVID infections in a community. So all of this is why we need to be people that are with on-site systems, uh, people with no systems, or people that are uh, on these small treatment plants. And what we found when we did the testing is that a lot of the people that had the high incidence of of, um, hookworm. And these other tropical parasites were not necessarily just people that were straight piping and had no septic systems. These were also people that had it coming all around. They couldn't escape it. It was in their yards, coming into their homes, coming into their bathtubs. So, you know, we really, really have to do something to address infrastructure. And when we talk about a Green New Deal, we can't just talk about roads and bridges. Can't just talk about power grids. We also have to talk about wastewater because it's basic and it's basic to public health. And we have to be concerned that the next pandemic may not start somewhere else. It could start right here in the United States because we have the conditions here that are festering, that could feed
0: it. I think a lot of urban people, they flush and they don't, don't think about where it goes. Uh, but people, yeah, there's something about 20 percent of American households are on a septic system and they have to be maintained. And it uh, sounds like you're talking a little bit about the criminalization of poverty, arresting people with inadequate sewage treatment. And is your solution that government funding to, uh, to give people the resources to have adequate sanitation? I
3: think it. I think it's two pronged. I think we need to not only have adequate sanitation, we need to have sanitation that works. And what I, what I, what I don't like, and what I've been seeing, are people that are exploiting the situation. Because this happened with Bob Wilson and I, people that told us that these septic systems will work, that the, we paid for them, and they failed. and then they blame the homeowners for it. And what we're finding out now is that throughout the country, that they're failing, and as a result, we need to have we need to have the type of investment in finding infrastructure that works. I believe that we can do that because with climate change, there's a new normal. So we have to develop. We have to be uh, forward thinking. What w- what would have worked when I first started doing this work years ago? is not working now. So I think it should be two-pronged. I think that the government, with the, especially with the current government that we have, needs to fund innovation, in institutions, academic institutions, working with environmental justice communities around the United States to find solutions that will work. I also think that we can look to space because they treat wastewater drinking water quality there. Why why can we not do that here? We have to start thinking out of the box and stop being trapped. That's why we have an economic paradigm that is killing people with COVID because we are so trapped, we only know one way to do it, that we can't even think of a different way that will also not only save the economy, but save lives too. And we have to be we have to be those kind of thought leaders if we're, gonna, we're going to solve this wastewater problem.
0: Catherine Coleman Flowers, what does the election of Vice President Kamala Harris mean for your work advocating for environmental justice?
3: Well, it means so much to me. First of all, she... Is a graduate of an HBCU. Uh, she is also uh, a member of the Divine Nine, which is the group of Black sororities and fraternities. She's an AKA, I'm a Delta. Uh, and it meant a lot to me, so much so that I done pearls on the day that she was inaugurated.
0: <laughs> well, a lot of people so, are wearing pearls these days. Yeah. Yeah.
3: So I, I actually, actually, there were some men on the site that I was a part of. I saw some men, some fathers who done pearls, too, for their daughters. But what does it we'll, mean? We'll if, see
0: LeBron James in pearls pretty soon. Yeah. Yeah,
3: yes. <laughs> and, and it was, it was wonderful because to see her ascend to that role says a lot for my daughter and it speaks to her and it speaks to so many black women around this country. I remember, you know, growing up when the only time you would see a black woman on television, she generally was portraying a prostitute or something like that. And to see, I mean, it meant so much to me to see her inaugurated, even now, it, you know, kind of brings me to tears because it is so significant because we have come such a long way. And I remember when I was growing up and I thought, you know, at that time I was a kid and I wanted to be the first black justice, female justice on the Supreme Court. But my daughter can ascend to be the president. I mean, she can aspire to that. But it also means that my grandson can aspire to that too. That's the America that I grew up believing in and still
0: believe in to this day. So, Catherine Coleman Flowers, you're something quite remarkable in American politics these days. Bernie Sanders calls you. You consider Jeff Sessions a friend and ally. You know Corinna Gore and serve on her board and board the board of Al Gore's Climate Reality Project. Not many Americans can say they can pick up the phone and call Al Gore and Jeff Sessions and Bernie Sanders. How do you do it?
3: <laughs> I don't think there's a formula I just be myself I'm humble I don't mind asking and I was you know it's it's like when I was um, teaching one of the things that I had in my class I would say that the only I would always encourage my students to ask questions and I said the only stupid question was the one that was never asked but also I think that we have to find the humanity in each and every one of us. We all have that.
0: That was Catherine Coleman Flowers, environmental health advocate and the author of Waste, One Woman's Fight Against America's Dirty Secret. We're talking about climate, health, and poverty on Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My next two guests are both deeply involved in the intersection of social and environmental justice, Aaron Bernstein is Interim Director of the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. He's also a practicing pediatrician. Adrian Hollis is Senior Climate Justice and Health Scientist with the Union of Concerned Scientists. President Biden recently signed executive orders that for the first time make environmental justice a top White House priority.
1: My initial reaction was um, pretty much the same as most most people in this space is um, first a sense of relief. And then a sense of excitement about, um, you know, the fact that environmental justice is is really um, getting the attention it deserves. And then a sense of um, the enormity of the task that these executive orders are going to lead to.
0: Right. And there's a new environmental justice working group in the White House, goal of directing 40 percent of benefits of federal investments to disadvantaged communities. Um, We've heard some of this before. You know, what are you looking for for proof that it's it's real this time?
1: Well, I think that the proof is in the fact that looking at the people that have been hired to do the work, that's different. Most of the people, if not all, have experience in working um, in these spaces, working with communities. Uh, Michael Reagan, and, um, if he is confirmed, and a bunch of other people have very good relationships with communities. And that's unusual. That's not the norm.
0: Aaron Bernstein, a year into the COVID crises, what have we learned about the human response to threats of an invisible virus, COVID-19, and an invisible gas, carbon dioxide?
2: Yeah, it's been sort of a great psychological experiment, because on the one hand, the response to COVID is one would, in many ways, what one would expect from a crisis. Uh, People transformed how they lived. Many were not happy about that. There was a great pressure to find solutions, vaccines, improved diagnostic testing, you know, especially now at the Biden administration, there's a very much an all hands on deck at the same time you heard Gina McCarthy say in her remarks on Climate Day that climate change was the single biggest health crisis we face, and yet we haven't taken the same sense of urgency and The reason is because we perceive climate change as a distant problem, and that's a falsehood um but it really makes clear that for those of us who are interested in finding you know, pass to greater uptake of climate action, we need to make the case that climate actions matter to our welfare today. Uh, Climate actions matter to the health of the children I care for as a pediatrician. They especially matter to people who are poor, people of color in this country who've been disproportionately burdened by air pollution that is overwhelmingly from burning fossil fuels. And so one of the take-home messages for me with COVID is we've got to make our climate messaging crisis-proof. We've got to make it so that when the next bump in the road happens, and I'm not trying to minimize COVID here, but the point that there will be future challenges and our approach to climate change has to be able to keep us on track through those storms.
0: Adrian Hollis, how do you see the the connection between how we've responded to what we've learned about this very immediate threat of COVID and this perceived less immediate threat of climate change? How are they paralleled?
1: Well, you know, um, they're definitely connected. And I like to, you know, my work, my writing, my attention has been on the fact that all of them are connected and um, the underlying cause is systemic racism. And that, you know, because of that, communities are affected by Adverse effects from climate change, and because of exposure to hazardous substances, because of where they live, because of redlining and such, they are more at risk from um, uh, COVID nineteen infections and deaths. So I've always uh, um, made that connection, and then the my colleagues have done the same. You know that I think for for a while COVID in and of itself was the main focus, but now people are, especially during hurricane season and and now beyond, and and when it was hot, of course, people are making the connection and how does COVID make us more susceptible to climate change effects? So they're definitely related.
0: Adrian Hollis, what are some specific ways that climate inequality, environmental inequality are making Americans sick?
1: Well, um, specifically, let's talk about, for example, Cancer Alley. Right. Where the communities have been exposed daily, hourly, um, not even, you know, just their everyday lives to um, air toxics, water toxins and all of the, those things that affect their health. And on top of that, for example, when Hurricane Laura hit, there was also a fire right at a bio lab facility and communities were told to shelter in place. Don't open the windows, don't turn on the air. It was also a, a hot day. A very mm-hmm. high temperatures. So that's just one extreme example, which it now it used to be extreme, but now maybe more regular that we'll, you know, we'll see more regularly. And that is just uh, an example of the impact, you know, that climate change and, 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 and all it, all of its accompanying inequities have had on communities. And we've seen that all over the country.
0: You're listening to a conversation about climate and environmental inequality. This is Climate One. Coming up, the number of COVID deaths in the United States has grown to the point of abstraction. It's hard to wrap our head around half a million deaths. So how do we bring home the reality of the statistics?
1: You take a big thing like that and you personalize it because people really want to know three things, right? What is it? How does it affect me? And what can I do about it? That's the information we need to give people.
0: This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about environmental health and climate-related disease with Aaron Bernstein of Harvard's Chan School of Public Health and Adrian Hollis of the Union of Concerned Scientists. Pandemics are nothing new. In recent history, widespread outbreaks of HIV-AIDS, SARS, and Ebola should have all given us a preview of things to come. Yet despite warnings from health officials, our government was slow to act when COVID-19 came on the scene. Aaron Bernstein, a practicing pediatrician, often sees similar inaction among his own patients' families. In their case, he says, it's not so much a lack of knowledge as it is a lack of resources.
2: We give all kinds of advice because science tells us that there are good things to do to promote child health. And yet, in many circumstances, that doesn't happen. And so, we, you know, I'm very used to people hearing information that could protect the health of their children and that not happening. And so to me, the question becomes why is that? What do we need to do to actually get to the change we need? And, you know, it doesn't help. And a very good example is if I'm taking care of a child who's overweight, it doesn't help me, mu- doesn't help that child much to lecture a parent about helping that child eat healthy, because the reason they're overweight is because the cheapest foods are the unhealthiest, they have no access to good foods, the parent doesn't have time to repair the foods, the healthy foods are too expensive, and about 16 other things, which frankly makes saying you should feed your child healthier foods an insulting thing to say. So, you know, in the context of of emerging infections, of course, we're not thinking upstream because there are huge amounts of money to be made downstream. You can make money on vaccines, you can make money on tests, you can do. There's a return on investment proposition, and we have not been able to get the value proposition on the table for working upstream, which you know, on the, in one very narrow sense, comes down to deforestation as a major driver of emergence. We try and put a carbon value on timber. Uh, we try and. Put some other values on it. We haven't even thought about the fact that you know, and we don't have evidence on COVID's emergence. We may never have great evidence, but with Ebola in 2013, which everyone remembers, uh, those bats which transmitted Ebola were pushed into a new part of West Africa because their homes had been chopped down, uh, primarily for the production of palm oil. And I want to come back for just a second, Greg, to a point that Adrian raised earlier about intersectionality. You know, her work. Describing how these uh, issues of equity and climate and health are so intertwined is just spot on. You know, the inequities that we allow to fester in society, whether that's based on racial inequities, other social inequities, uh, these are the fissures through which, whether it's the climate crisis, a pandemic crisis, uh, they, they, they thrive in these fissures. They tear them open. And frankly, pandemics are really, in the most painful way, show us what we need to fix in our societies. They see these seams that have been left. We, we sort of allow them to be swept under the rugs. I mean, health disparities, wealth disparities, uh, you know, the average white American family has seven times the wealth of the average black American family. Okay, this is what I'm talking about. We sort of let these things, you know, persist. And that's not random, of course. Um, and then you get a pandemic and all of a sudden people are stunned that Black Americans are dying at twice to maybe three times the rate from this disease. Well, that's the same exploitation that would happen from that that is happening from climate change. And so if you want to address pandemics and you want to address climate change, you've got to focus on equity. And the solution and the great news in some ways is that the actions you need to take are one and the same. Uh, And they're the things that I can't do to fix obesity, right? So I can't tell, you know, telling the parent to feed healthy foods to their child doesn't work. But making better access to transportation, better access to healthier nutritious foods, better community amenities, um, these are at the core of climate solutions their equity solutions and they provide resilience to pandemics when they emerge. Adrian Hollis, let's
0: talk about that solution side because we've been talking about some of the threats and the risks. Let's talk about the upside about how solutions will make us healthier and what needs to be done to have those solutions be distributed in an equitable way.
1: Wow, that's a that's a deep question and it's it's um it's going to take time to really address systemic racism, which is, as I said, the foundation for all of this, but there are some immediate things, actions that can be done. First, let me say the fact that we've we've had warnings, we've had lessons, you know, with Hurricane Katrina, and we didn't listen, right? You know, it told us, protect your um, your most um, at risk, protect your frontline, and we didn't do it. And this has been going on four years, since the, the early 1900s. We've been putting frontline people out there, mostly people of color, just about all people of color. And so, um, when it comes to, just as um, Dr. Bernstein said, you know, some of the things that we can do immediately is look at how we've situated communities, how we've, you know, the areas that we've put them in, the flood prone areas. And, you know, we've had situations where people are told you can't get flood insurance unless you raise your house 10 feet or whatever it is. And no one has, they don't have the money to do that. So let's think of some other options, right? So that people become resilient. And, and so that we can adapt to these things and not be reactive, but be proactive, right? And, and as you also said, you know, look at putting stores in communities. So economic justice is a big issue that I think people can start addressing right now. And part of that is looking at infrastructure. And when I talk about infrastructure, I don't mean just transportation. I'm also talking about the homes themselves, if you live in homes that are subpar. Then we talk about issues around um, in in climate conditions where it becomes extremely hot or extremely cold, and you don't have the wherewithal to protect yourselves and your family because of leaky infrastructure, something very simple and yet very complicated. All of these things require funds, and I think that there should be a set-aside of some type so that people can work themselves to identify issues, because communities know what they need. People know what they need. The public knows what they need. People in rural areas know what they need. And just they don't have the wherewithal in some instances or the, they aren't given the opportunity to address those issues themselves. So I think that immediately, you know, we can do some actions. We can provide um, opportunities um, for them to have access to healthy foods or medical attention. You know, that's another conversation entirely around the vaccine and, it's, and how accessible it is two communities. And I can speak from a personal level with my mom on that. My mom is a four-time cancer survivor who happens to be hypertensive and diabetic. And initially when the pandemic first hit, um, her doctor, her oncologist kept telling her, well, the office that she needed to come in just to have a discussion. And she would call me and she lives in Alabama and would say, I don't really want to go in. I'm afraid to go in. And, I'm, and I was, you don't have to go in. You can, you know, telemedicine is available. And she didn't know it. And when I called the doctor's office and I said, you know, we need telemedicine. Oh yes, she qualifies for that. Well, um, why didn't you tell her that? Well, she didn't ask, you know, questions like that. And, and then when it came to the vaccine, I think she was told, well, you're gonna have to keep calling the office because we have too many patients to, to call around. And she, she had the first vaccine on my birthday, so that was the best present ever, but she didn't get it from a doctor. She heard about an event in the Mobile, and she went there as did most of the, um, my friend's parents and receive that for shot just by sitting in a car in a line to get that shot and that's amazing to me and that and and the fact that um there were no real mask mandates you know to, and and I just feel like the the knowledge gap and the ability to just provide simple information to our most at risk is cuz she's 84 also I didn't say that um I just I can't wrap my mind around it and I feel like it's in some instances deliberate you know oh yeah we would have told her had she asked she wouldn't have known to
0: ask, you know. Aaron Bernstein, is a pediatrician and parent, you've written about how climate disasters can harm children, their bodies, and their mental health. What are we learning about how a year like 2020 impacts our kids and their development?
2: Yeah, so I remember early on in in COVID how uh, there were many voices saying, oh, this isn't so bad for our children. They don't seem to get so sick, uh, and we're not sure they're spreading it, so and, you know, I, I, I understand where those ideas came from, but boy, are they wrong. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, you, at any point in childhood and, and, you know, starting in infancy, first of all, the parents being stressed and getting sick and even dying is obviously bad for any child. Then there's the financial hardship, which, as Adrian alludes to, is not being distributed equally across the population. It's falling heaviest on frontline workers who are disproportionately people of color and and the poor. And those are the kids who we know are already most at risk for what we call adverse childhood events and toxic stress. And their biggest buffer to those things are their parents and their caregivers. Uh, Then, of course, there's schooling and, you know, to things that leave my mind spinning you know, we had bars open, we had tattoo parlors open, we had all kinds of you know amenities for adults, and we couldn't get our schools open. And and you know, you hear these stories of parents who are losing their jobs, losing their income, trying to figure out how their kid to keep in virtual school. And you know, the kids were not all right here. This was not a, not a good you know. This is this again, as I said, pandemics in the most painful way, show us what we need to fix with our society. And it turns out we are not uh, addressing the needs of our children anywhere commensurate with the richest country in the world. Um, One in five children in the United States, disproportionately children of color, were hungry prior to COVID, meaning they didn't know where their next meal is coming from. And then you look at what's going on in 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 this country where we have record profits record income wealth uh huge diversions of money out of the public stream and tax evasion primarily among the wealthy and forget about your politics here what what kind of people do we want to be i mean what kind of people are we are these the kinds of things we want to happen and i think if that you know That discourse gets into the public eye. My hope is that people would find some common ground to say, you know, it doesn't really make sense to allow our corporations to outsource their profits to other countries so they don't have to pay taxes or the wealthiest people in the country to find ways to pay lower taxes on other people so that our children can be fed. Uh, And I think COVID is what's shining a light on this, is that we allow these problems to fester. Starving children, no, we're not going to deal with that. Wealth inequalities, no, health inequalities, not my problem. And then we realize COVID is a destructive force for everyone. And COVID, as I mentioned, courses through the same fissures as climate change does. And so we've got to pay attention to these things to make sure we put ourselves on the right path.
0: Adrian Hollis, the number of US deaths from COVID is approaching half a million people. Hundreds of millions of people are impacted in some lethal and non-lethal ways by climate disruption today. Here's Anthony Leiserwitz from Yale University on understanding those statistics. As human beings, we're just not well built to understand and really understand the meaning of these large numbers that each one of which, of course, is an individual story. You know, the hundreds of thousands of people who have died of COVID in this country in just the past nine months, I can say that, but you can't really understand that we just can't compute it in that way. And in fact, climate change itself is an abstraction. You cannot directly experience global climate change by yourself, right? You literally can't. You can experience specific impacts, but you cannot experience what's going on around the entire world in the ice, in the oceans, in the biosphere, in the atmosphere. Dr. Hollis, I'd like to get your response to our just difficulty of, of experiencing and taking in the magnitude of the pain and suffering from COVID and climate.
1: Well, you know, I think it's, I agree with that, but I think you never just give that message that we're almost at 500,000 people. I think then you start to personalize it and of that population and then break it down. How many are children? How many are elderly? How many are this? And then break it down even further, depending on who you're talking to. Everything has to be tailored to your audience. So if I'm talking about an issue as I do regularly in, in Prince George's County, Maryland, where I live, I may go globally first and talk about that. Then I talk about the US, then I talk about the um different states and how maryland is whatever the numbers are and then i go uh, look at i talk about the number of um, deaths and and infections in different counties and which counties are the highest and in this particular instance sadly my county is the highest in maryland and talk about that, and talk about what that means for people who live here. So you take a big thing like that, and you personalize it, and you can do that, right? Because people really want to know three things, right? What is it? How does it affect me? And what can I do about it? And it's our job to make that, that's the information we need to give people. So I think the, the global information, the larger in picture, does have an impact, especially when you break it down, sort of like a A V, right?
0: An upside down pyramid. It would be in journalism, right? right? You sort of start with the big and then and then bring it home. So, you know, Doctor Bernstein, most people don't discuss climate change with their doctor. Um, You know, how is climate change relevant to a doctor seeing patients today in an office or hospital? You run something called I think it's called Climate MD.
2: Yeah, that's right, Greg. So, we started this program uh, at Harvard Chan Seed Change called Climate MD because we realized that the science told us that climate change is political, right? So people hear climate change and it becomes immediately an ideological divide. It's not a conversation about science or even values. It's just, are you invested? It becomes a conversation about whether you think government has an important role in addressing societal problems. So we realize it's politicized. We then know that in order to make progress, you got to depoliticize it because you can't argue on pure ideological grounds and get anywhere. Uh, How do you depoliticize it? Well, the evidence is that health messaging is really important, talking about particularly how climate actions matter to health today, can improve our health right now, prevent asthma attacks, prevent death from heart disease, lung diseases, uh, save our brains, uh, that these are important messages. And the best people to deliver these messages, the most trusted voices are nurses and doctors. So we realized that while well, the evidence shows that nurses and doctors are overwhelmingly concerned about climate change as a health issue, it was not clear how climate change mattered to our day jobs. Meaning you could ask a doctor, does climate change matter to health? Sure. Does it matter to how you do your job? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. And so Climate MD is trying to fill that void. It's trying to show uh, the various healthcare professions that Climate change is actually a direct threat to our ability to do our jobs, and we see that as critical because if we can get that message clear, uh, we're going to have a much easier time getting the health professionals to engage in conversations about climate because it'll be about doing their jobs. And and we're seeing and you know I've watched this for twenty years. Health messaging has come to the fore, and increasingly the healthcare community. Is, is being vocal, I, and I'm the first person to say that nurses have been leading the charge on this way before uh, medical doctors. But you know, my colleagues in medicine were were coming along now too.
0: Doctor Hollis, as you hear that, what do you th- you think about that? About how do we build a climate ready healthcare workforce, and should we rely on elite institutions like Harvard to leave away, way, or, or or perhaps other institutions?
1: Well, you know, um, I think. First of all, I'm going to be pro-Harvard because I did my postdoc there um, <laughs> <laughs> at the School of Public Health. So I'm definitely pro-Harvard. But I really think we, to answer your question, of course, particularly our HBCU and Hispanic-facing um, universities and reaching these populations that we've already said are at risk for various reasons so that we can start addressing these problems. And another thing we talk talking about is addressing physicians. And this is something we've been focusing on. I know I've been focusing on since the early 90s is educating physicians about what to look for. And so part of that was training the medical professional and the healthcare professional and and everybody who's gonna come into contact with people who are more at risk. So to answer your question, yes, we need to involve all stakeholders and people need to know what some of the possible suggested symptoms are. Like this could be more than just a common cold or an allergy or, I happen to have asthma. Well, maybe you have asthma because you live in an environment where your surroundings include three incinerators. I don't know, or you live in California where they've just lifted the ban on uh, incineration because the number of um, bodies that have to be cremated, right? So are we expected to see more uh, respiratory effects? I'm not a physician, but I'm gonna say probably.
0: On Climate One today, we've been talking about environmental injustice and healthcare inequity in the age of COVID and climate change. My guests were Adrian Hollis, Senior Climate Justice and Health Scientist for the Union of Concerned Scientists, and Aaron Bernstein, Interim Director of the Center for Climate Health and the Global Environment at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. And we started the program with Katherine Coleman Flowers, founder of the Center for Rural Enterprise and Environmental Justice, and author of Waste, One Woman's Fight Against America's Dirty Secret. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Annie Chelsea edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.